Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud, ESG Clarity's podcast series. I'm Deputy Editor Natasha Turner and today we are talking all about COP with less than a month to go until the actual event. We've organised today's podcast uh, with COP in mind. We've got a blue zone and a green zone. In, in the Blue Zone interview, we are speaking to Amy O'Brien, Head of Responsible Investing at Nuveen. And then for the Green Zone, we'll be speaking with David Barnes, one of the senior economists at Positive Money. So that is coming up later on in this episode. But first of all, I am chatting here with Natalie Kenway, Global Head of ESG Insights at ESG Clarity. And we are, I mean, basically just looking forward to COP, I suppose. We're both going to be there. We want to know who else is going to be there, uh, what you're looking forward to, what you're expecting to see, and just to come and say hi to us when we're there, I guess. Yes, I am very excited. Um, I think a lot of people are because obviously it's been postponed for a year, so it's been a long time coming and there was still doubt over whether it would even go ahead this year but it looks very much the case we've got our hotel books our trains books we've got our cameraman coming with us so I'm really excited to um be there and be interviewing all of the different people there not just people from asset management as well it'd be great to get some insights from other sectors um and yeah we're launching a very special area on the ESG Clarity website for COP26 coverage I'm very excited to launch that near the time and look out for that for updates, news analysis and videos. So that will be really, really cool. But you've been talking with quite a few people in the investment management industry, Natalie, about um, expectations for COB and people's net zero journeys as well, which is, of course, going to be the, the big focus. And what, what are you sort of, um, hearing in your talks with people and what are people expecting to see? Yeah, it's been quite interesting because as the year's gone on, obviously the amount of net zero pledges has really increased. Um, but what, the, what a lot of people are saying is we, we're seeing these commitments for 2040, 2050, even in some cases 2060. That's a long time away. That's decades away. The action needs to be now. So what I wanted to explore was some of the interim milestones that need to be taken or hit in the lead up to these 2040, 2050 dates, what happened, what needs to be done now by the investment management industry? And I don't know if people have seen it, but in our very um, snazzy new look digital magazine, um, there was a piece on the roadmap to net zero with some of those interim milestones. And I think if you have a look at that, first of all, the initial steps is agreeing, all of the investment industry needs to agree that there, they, we need to take action on this and urgently as well. It's not just something, oh, right, we've, we've made our net zero commitment and let's have a look again in five years time and see what else we need to do. We need to be doing something about it now, whether that's decarbonizing portfolios, joining um, forces with other asset managers and putting pressure on some of the, the worst polluters. There's plenty of different things going on. We've got regulatory activity going on as well where we're, there's pressure on the governments to introduce more net zero targets and outline how and what a net zero economy looks like in terms of um, policies. Um, the UCSIF, the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance in, um, Organization, have said that they want to see net zero outlined in the upcoming budget in the UK. So 
it's coming from all areas. We we really do need to see some action being taken and right now. Yeah, definitely. I think even we've seen a kind of shift. We started doing these countdown to COP26 emails back in January this year, um, uh, really looking forward to, to what was going to happen in November. And it seemed like when we started doing it, it was all about covering pledges, right? Everyone was making a, a net zero pledge. Um, and a lot of that has been done now. And now people are really starting to look into those commitments. And like you said, laying out the interim um, targets that need to be hit. Um, and I mean, even last week, um, we saw another shareholder resolution pulling up a bank on its commitments and saying they don't actually line up with what is going to be needed for you know, net zero by 2050. So it, there's been a shift even, I think, in the year that we've been covering things uh, from, okay, the commitments are being made, but how are we actually gonna hit those targets? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I mean, there are lots of different frameworks out there. Um, we've got the task force for climate related financial disclosures. There's lots of different alliances being formed. Um, but in yeah, in that roadmap to net zero pace, I really wanted to sort of drill down and see what are the key things that should be doing, we should be doing right now. And if you take a look at that, hopefully that will give you a clearer idea. And hopefully we will have more clarity after COP26 as well in terms yeah. of what the financial industry and investment industry need to be doing. And that pressure will be ramped up again, I hope. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, as you say, um, and there's pressure from all angles. But we're covering it all. Plug, plug, plug. See our coverage for COP and say hi to us there. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, great to speak to you today, Natalie, and um, please keep listening for the interviews with Amy and David coming up next. Well, I am delighted to be joined by Amy O'Brien, Head of Responsible Investing at Nuveen. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Amy, and the uh, the blue zone of the podcast, as we're calling it. And um, we're here to talk uh, all about COP, as you know. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's start with, with COP first of all, because it's less than a month away. What do you hope to see there? And uh, and what will this mean for the investment industry? Well, certainly we're we're almost there. Um, and there's a lot of momentum and, and you know glo global action and, and conversations leading up to this. I mean, these types of convenings are really important for you know rallying and unifying and advancing global action plans on how to jointly address climate change. And so, you know, where, where, where we are now, you know, compared to where we were in um, with Paris, I mean, I think Paris established the destination for us or the world's target when it came to uh, emissions. And we frankly haven't had that kind of focus as a global industry um, on any ESG topic before. So here we are um, heading into the, into the next round. And, and, to, uh, and so we expect that um, trends around net zero target setting will continue. Um, you know, which really signals that the private sector believes that the low carbon transition will occur. And so think about what's happened over the past you know, year or so, and the largest large public companies have set net zero commitments, asset owners have, asset managers. And so, you know, in addition to beginning to rally action around those targets, you know, I've seen a lot of strong momentum within organizations for how they're organizing and frankly, how the, the broader community, if you will, of multiple stakeholders are, are organizing. So I guess in sum, I'd say that, you know, we're expecting more of the Paris playbook 
to be developed um, at the COP, but certainly um, this is what you know represents one important moment in you know continued evolution of of how the world is addressing the challenge of climate. Yeah, very important that it's not the the end of the discussions, right? It just you know a springboard to to keep having these discussions. Absolutely. All right. So, in the plausible out outcomes, right, are you know there's a lot of focus, of course, on the the country level targets, and you know we're optimistic that that you know countries will achieve um, and attain. Uh, or, or be focused on a, a, a ramping up, if you will, ratcheting up. I think is the is this is the word. Um, those those targets, but you know this time around, I see a lot more involvement of uh, you know stakeholders working together. Certainly, you know we've been part of a number of initiatives that are, are trying to more closely tie you know make the connection between the policy and regulatory risk side, the data that's needed by investors uh, to take action, and so. We think that you know those angles and those dimensions um, and that broader you know climate information ecosystem will also be at the center of, of conversations. Are there are there any things on your wish list that as we get closer, you're thinking, God, I, I really hope that that gets mentioned, that happens, you know, that commitment is made. Yeah, I think it's it's really this convergence around you know we, we've decided as a world right around the destination, and I think that was the. This, this target that we're all aiming for, you know, coming out of, of the Paris uh, Accords back in 2015. Um, you know, and then in the meantime, we've, we've all, you know, gone through a global pandemic. And so, you know, what I, what I think uh, is going to come out and be more of a focus of this is the focus on the social equity aspect of, of the transition. And so we're seeing, you know, I, I mean, I think that's really important because as, as we think about you know, where, where finance is needed, um, you know, what's possible in the developed world and, and emerging economies, um, we're gonna have to put a lot more emphasis on, on the social dimension of the transition. So you know, that, that's certainly something I, I'm hopeful that we will we'll focus on um, in addition to really unpacking more, again, that sort of climate information ecosystem that's, that's really required. Again, we have the destination in mind, we need um, you know, the data, we need, um, and we need good disclosure. Um, and you know, that's something that, again, will not just happen at COP, but you know, we'll be focusing on as uh, the global finance community after, after that event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, um, really interesting points. So let's talk about the transition then and uh, the different transitions maybe that different sectors are going to have to go through. What does that mean and how um, can the investment industry be kind of taking those different paces into account? So, you know, this, this comes off the back of the point around, you know, when, when organizations set a net zero target. And that is something that uh, TIA, which is you know, Nuveen's parent company, has established for its general account. And so we have to look at those transition pathways in a couple of ways. Um, there's been a lot of focus on, on sector transition pathways, but we as you know, an investment organization are looking at how our different asset classes you know, are then overlaid with those sectors and what are the information needs there. So we, we have been working um, pretty, pretty intensely on uh, you know, the pathways for our own general account um, this involves real estate, uh, real assets, and a, a really wide range of fixed income uh, investments. 
And spending a lot of time since uh, our announcement of our, of our net zero a target earlier this year on developing those pathways with our investment teams. And so what's interesting here, you know, these pathways have to be looked at in a couple of different lenses. And when you have a highly diversified long-term portfolio, um, you have to take a, a pretty holistic view um, by asset class, by sector, and then get into the real details of, of implementation. And that's where we are now. And you know, we as an organization will be um, releasing later this year uh, a climate report uh, that really shows our progress, our thinking, um, you know, and our contribution to this really important dialogue about how do you take aspiration and turn it into implementation for, for again, a very large, broadly diversified uh, portfolio. So we'll see you know, a lot more transparency coming. Um, so not just from companies themselves, uh, but certainly from, from the asset managers um, and asset owners themselves as they share progress with, with the world and, and their constituents on, on, that, um, on achieving targets, right? So I think there's gonna be a really significant focus on uh, many stakeholders, again, our, our end clients, uh, civil society, you know, NGOs, on you know, show us the proof that you know, real, real change and real world uh, emission reductions are, are, are a result of, of these targets. What do you corporates need to be doing to, to be improving transparency? So we've, we have been working uh, for, for many years. I mean, climate risk and the management of it and, and, the, and, and taking advantage of opportunities has been a cross-cutting theme, and particularly for our, our stewardship and engagement um, activities. And you know, one, one thing that we are seeing from portfolio companies is you know, they're coming to, to, to organizations like, like our own and, and asking for advice about you know, what is the, the pathway, what is the kind of reporting that you need from us uh, so that you have, you're able to assess you know, our long-term planning when it comes to managing this risk. And so you saw certainly in the US um, the past uh, season, proxy voting season, you know, some, some real record-breaking um, votes and, and shareholder proposal votes on the new kinds of reporting. So it's not just about, you know, tell us how you're managing risk, but it's, it's asking around, you know, different scenario analyses that we want to see um, so that we can assess, again, the, the long-term viability of those companies. But I see this really, you know, coming becoming more of a partnership between investors and companies and and because we realize, you know, we need each other. And, you know, one thing that we have to realize as a investment community is that we can't turn our portfolio into a deep green portfolio overnight, uh, especially, you know, large long-term um, asset owners, universal owners, sometimes we, we call them. Um, we're going to have to work with our portfolio companies on the transition, you know, understand what their plans are, and then, you know, really partner with them to make sure that that transition is in the best interest, long-term interest, um, you know, for sustainable returns for the portfolio as well. We also have, you know, a lot of companies coming to us and asking for uh, our advice on, you know, what it would take to have a credible, um, you know, green bond issuance, you know, or what are our views on the different types of, you know, sustainability-linked bonds. And, you know, they, they really want to make sure that the, the types of, um, securities and, and you know, bonds that are, that are being floated in the market are going to be taken up you know, by, by investors who, who care, um, who take this topic very seriously and want to you know, prevent the, the dreaded greenwashing concern. So you know, I think there's just a 
you know, unprecedented level of cooperation, uh, you know, that's happening behind the scenes, you know, within the investment community with, with these different actors, with many of us aligning around, you know, best practice standards and, and disclosure. And so, you know, oftentimes I think some of the the hype that happens around the big global events are some of the you know, disagreements between companies on targets. But you know, I've seen firsthand that this kind of cooperation is, is happening behind the scenes and really driving the agenda uh, forward. In terms of um, advocating on disclosures and things, am I right in thinking you've um, been engaging with the SEC? To what have you been advocating for there? Yeah, so this is another you know big shift over the past five years. I think you know many of us who have been involved in responsible investing and sustainable finance over the years have always had a dimension of our work associated with policy and regulatory you know, engagement. But I think for, for large investors like, like Nuveen, I mean, we have uh, investments all over the world. We have clients all over the world and now um, subject to many different types of uh, disclosure ourselves. And so it's, again, it's not just the portfolio companies um, that, that need to produce information. Um, and it's, it's us as investors, as asset managers and, and asset owners. And so we, we really feel that it has been in our best interest uh, to work on behalf of, of clients uh, to, to, you know, to operate within a regulatory framework that really facilitates the clear flow of information from companies to investors about material risks. And we just don't have that yet. You know, many regulatory regimes, we don't have mandatory disclosure yet. Um, I think there's been a significant work done over the years on the voluntary disclosures. Um, think about the Global Reporting Initiative uh, starting years ago. Um, we have SASB now. Now we have, you know, T TCFD. So we're working, uh, we're very proactively with our regulators um, here in the States. So uh, in, in, at the SEC level, certainly um, responding to their call for feedback on a climate disclosure framework. Um, and then more globally advocating for the use of the TCFD as the common reporting framework on climate risk. And then you know, working with a number of policymakers on the importance of setting credible net zero targets. And so one of the interesting things is we've had new types of regulators um, in the US, you know, beyond the SEC, uh, those focused on insurance companies. And so we're sort of taking our experience um, of trying to implement and bring it to these different uh, regulatory conversations so that in the end, you know, we're, we're facilitating a, a global system. Um, you know, one thing that's happened, I think when we all look back in this industry, and I've now been in this industry for 25 years, I think we can see it really did grow up in, in a bit of a fragmented way. And so I think, you know, not just at the COP, but, you know, in this year, this time, and it's really our responsibility to help make this taxonomy, this global taxonomy and disclosure uh, framework work for, for everyone. Um, again, there's been a lot of good reg um, voluntary uh, um, work done. Companies, uh, you know, large companies around the world have have been um, working and, and reporting against some of these voluntary frameworks. And so we need to, to leverage the lessons learned um, from, from those efforts and bring them into the policy framework now. So we don't have to start from scratch. And you know, that's why I expect that it is going to be very important for asset managers like Nuveen to continue to, to spread um, and make those and help connect the dots you know, around the world. Brilliant, and thanks for tying that background to COP. That uh, brings us full circle. It sounds like you're, you know, really optimistic in general. 
about where this industry is going and, and what we can expect. That, I absolutely am. I mean, again, I've been in the industry for, you know, over two decades now. And, you know, it, it's it's really heartening to see the, the convergence, you know, particularly between the policymakers and the investors themselves. I think we have been operating, you know, in a uh, in an environment where stakeholders were, you know, talking to themselves. It was the policymakers talking to themselves, the companies talking to themselves and the investors. But I now see you know, greater convergence around that. Again, we're all seeing the need to have common definitions, common data sets, uh, you know, common uh, disclosure. And, and now you know, I'm seeing uh, also this renewed emphasis on um, what we talked about you know, in, in stewardship and engagement and the role um, of that long-term partnership. And so I hope we can, we can kind of use this topic um, in this time to, to have more partnership, more collaboration, uh, you know, versus continued fracturing. Um, because, you know, one thing that's happened, of course, in the past couple of years is, you know, almost everyone around the globe is now experiencing the effects of, of climate change in different ways. And so I think that's made it more real uh, for that, you know, average citizen. And so there's momentum there too, to, to, you know, for everyone to take action. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Amy. Well, thank you. And now joining me in the green zone of the podcast, as it were, I'm speaking with David Barnes, who's a senior economist at Positive Money. So it's uh, great to have you with us today, David. Thank you, Natasha. Pleasure to be here. Just to begin, can you tell us a bit about Positive Money and what your role there involves? Yes, of course. So Positive Money is a nonprofit research and campaign organization that was set up in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Our mission is to reform money and banking to build a fair, sustainable and democratic economy. And we aim to do that by producing research, engaging with um, and educating politicians and the public and mobilizing people powered campaigns. And we're very much part of a movement for economic systems change in the UK, but also in Europe. We have an office in in Brussels and as of recently also in in the US. Um, And my role within Positive Money is very much on the research side of things. So as you mentioned, I'm a senior economist and I jointly lead our research program. Uh, My expertise is in is in ecological economics. So I focus on our environment related research, uh, in particular on green central banking and financial supervision. Um, And I I also work more broadly on macroeconomic policy and policy coordination. Uh, And currently I'm also investigating the ways in in which the financial sector is exerting influence over policymakers at this kind of very crucial time for financial regulation in the UK. And Positive Money is one of the groups in in a coalition um, going to COP or are these sort of um, organising around COP26 later on, is that right? Yes, so we we are involved in in a range of um, campaigning efforts around COP26. Uh, We will have um, some presence at at the conference, but mainly just to to speak at a couple of events. And and I'm sure some of us might well engage in bit of activism there um, in our own time. What are you um, hoping to, I guess, achieve out of the conference? Uh, I think the the main thing, I mean, my my colleague, our head of campaigns is probably 
better place to to talk about this in detail. But I think that the main action we're involved in is is a finance day of action on the 28th or 29th of October. Um, in terms of our own contribution to all of this, the kind of the main thing that we've done uh, just over the past few weeks, and which is very much in the lead up to COP26, is um, we've coordinated a, a letter to uh, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, um, calling on him to basically do, do two things, unleash green investment and regulate um, fossil finance. And that was signed by over 80 or maybe even over 85 MPs and, and peers in the House of Lords. Um, so we've, we just delivered that to the Bank of England last week. And um, that's, that's very much one of our you know, activities and, and main demands in, in the lead up to COP. So I guess our, our kind of main goal for this conference is to really make the case for uh, climate related or more, more broadly environment related uh, financial regulation to really steer the financial system um, in a more sustainable direction. And what are you expecting to see come out of the conference? I mean, in terms of regulation, um, I'm sure you can list a number of a, a large wish list for that, but what do you think we could realistically expect? Yeah, I suppose what we could realistically expect, I think, is some some changes to the commitments that some of the you know private alliances are making. So, for example, the uh, G fans, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, and some of the other financial alliances, um, net zero asset owners, et cetera. I think we, we might well see a sort of scaling up in, in the ambitions of, of some of these alliances, given that they've you know, received quite a lot of criticism from civil society uh, for you know, some potential greenwashing, not really making commitments that are uh, up to the, the scale of the crisis. I mean, we've had some of these alliances for quite a while. And I think, you know, since the Paris Agreement, we've still seen significant amounts of, of financial flows going into fossil fuel projects, including new fossil fuel projects. So I think the the, the number at the moment is um, since the, the Paris Agreement, the sixty worlds, the sixty biggest banks in the world, I think, have have funneled three point eight trillion U.S. dollars into fossil fuels, so about two point seven trillion uh, pounds in the UK. Barclays and um, HSBC alone have uh, financed fossil fuels to the tune of 185 billion, I believe, since the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I think there's just quite a, a deep mistrust of some of these voluntary alliances when this is the the behavior and the practices that we've seen from from the world's biggest financial institutions, even since we signed the Paris Agreement, and then. On top of that, of course, the details of the commitments, um, I think, you know, civil society were hoping to see some kind of strong commitments to immediate uh, scaling down of fossil fuel investments um, and, and some substantial targets on that front. And basically there, there was none of that um, in, in, in these alliances so far. So I think given that there was, you know, again, a significant amount of criticism um, and not necessarily the response that I'd say the likes of Mark Carney uh, and others were, were expecting in response to these alliances. Of course, you know, we had 
many leaders in the financial sector and leaders in government that, that did praise uh, these initiatives. But in civil society, the response was, was not particularly um, optimistic. So given that response, I think uh, it is quite possible that we'll see some, some additional commitments coming from them and also potentially some um, new institution, well, not new institutions, but institutions that are currently not part of these alliances joining them. So I think we will see some of that. I think we will also see, of course, some commitments from governments in terms of things like climate finance, international climate finance flows. That's a quite a quite a big topic at the moment. Um, and probably, you know, a fair bit of stuff around offsets and, you know, the, the net part of net zero. So if we see strong commitments and if we see more institutions signing up, what do these institutions need need to be doing really? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, of course, the I think these are positive steps if, if more institutions join and if the alliances as a whole kind of scale up their, their commitments. I think in terms of the particular commitments we want to see them making, um, you know, Positive Money was part of, um, uh, signed on to a letter recently that was delivered to Mark Carney, uh, specifically relating to his alliance, GFANS, and a few of the demands there included things like immediately presenting fossil fuel financing reduction targets and implementation plans covering all of their financial services uh, with the goal of halving financed emissions by 2030. Um, that's also something that is being proposed currently in the uh, Fossil Finance Act uh, that has been brought forward in the US. Um, and you know a couple other examples of, of things we'd like to see. Um, we want the findings from the IEA net zero scenario to be incorporated into their climate strategies, including prohibition of you know, financing of new fossil fuel projects, as well as new corporate level financing of companies expanding fossil fuel production and transportation. Um, so yeah, these are some of the kind of ambitious commitments that, that we would really like to see. Um, I think I, I'd be surprised if the commitments really did go that far. Um, but even if they do, uh, I think from our perspective at Positive Money, we still feel that we really need regulation to enforce all of this. And we, we don't tend to think that financial institutions will, in practice, actually implement these plans uh, by their own volition. Because while there are, of course, you know, opportunities in, in the transition, um, there are a lot of short-term reasons uh, financially to resist uh, ambitious action right now. So I think, yeah, from our perspective at Post of Money, the, the, real, the key here is to really pressure regulators and governments uh, to take a more active role in, in shaping financial markets. What kind of uh, specific regulation changes are you pushing for? Yeah, so probably the, the biggest regulatory change that we're pushing for relates to the bank capital framework. Um, so, so far, financial regulators have, have been considering and analyzing climate-related financial risk and, and making changes to uh, pillars two and three of, of the Basel framework. Um, so, looking at, you know, disclosure rules, for example, and the supervisory review process. Uh, but there haven't really been any changes yet to uh, minimum liquidity or even more importantly minimum capital 
requirements uh, to reflect climate-related financial risk. So we think that there's a very strong case for climate-related changes to minimum capital requirements. In particular, we think uh, a 1,250% risk weight for exposures to new fossil fuel projects is, is very much justified at the minute, given the very high risk of, of fossil fuel assets, new, of new fossil fuel assets be, becoming stranded as governments um, engage in the transition. Um, so, you know, the BIS, the Bank for International, well, the ba Basel Committee on Banking Supervision recently proposed um, a 1250% rule for crypto assets because they're particularly volatile and they risk, you know, going to zero essentially. So uh, we think that that can very easily be translated uh, for exposures to new fossil fuel projects. And then risk weights can also be changed uh, for other types of uh, climate risky uh, exposures as well. And then beyond that, we also look at some macro prudential measures like um, systemic risk buffers and uh, capital surcharges for globally systemically important uh, financial institutions. And we think that all of these tools that are already in the toolkit can very much be adapted uh, to reflect climate risk. And you know, when, when speaking with regulators about this, we really do take a risk-based approach. You know, we make the argument based on, on, on the risk involved. Uh, but then there's also quite a compelling narrative here when engaging with the public, because we do think that these measures would actually shift uh, financial flows away from fossil fuels in practice. So when talking with the public, we focus a bit more on the impact side of things. Uh, and of course, in general, we think the debate around green finance does have to shift to some extent away from uh, a sole focus on the inward risks and opportunities towards the actual outward impacts that financial institutions have on the climate system. So that's, you know, probably one of the main um, policy avenues we're, we're exploring at the moment. Um, and then, of course, there's also a, a big push to make transition plans for financial institutions mandatory. Um, and, you know, there are many civil society organizations um, advocating for this policy change at COP. And so we're also part of, of those calls. So, yeah, those are a couple of the key examples of climate-related regulation work. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's really interesting talking with you. Thanks very much, Natasha. Pleasure. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.